Hi, this is Dr. Sean Handorp, clinical psychologist and health behavior expert, and this is the Motivation Made Easy podcast. Each week, I'll be bringing you science-backed information, strategies, and inspiration to master your relationship with food so that you can feel in control of your habits, respect your body, and free your mind to focus on the things in life that truly matter. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I've had years of experience doing research and patient care in the field of weight management and eating disorders. So I've had the insider view on understanding what works and what we're getting very, very wrong. In this podcast, you'll find practical information and tips based on motivation science, interviews from experts, and stories from real people and how they've navigated their relationship with food. My goal is to empower you with information, inspire you to make changes that fit you, and feel 100% supported along the way. So settle in and make yourself comfortable, and get excited to learn and take action for a better, healthier, more energized life. Hey everyone, Dr. Hondor here, and I am really excited to introduce this episode. It's actually going to be a two-part series or a two-part two-parter because my conversation with Dr. Heather Gunn, who's a really good friend of mine, went long because we had so much to cover and we really get into a lot of different things related to sleep. This conversation is more than just your basics about sleep. We do go over the basics, um, but we also go over things that Heather has really been innovative in looking at as a researcher, and we talk about factors related to sleep that you may have not considered. In fact, I think it's very likely that you haven't considered them. She does a lot of research in interpersonal relationships, interpersonal theory. She and I talk all the time about autonomy and how important it is related to sleep as a behavior, but also just in general, this idea of psychological safety, feeling safe. This can relate to the people that are around you, what's going on in your world. It can also relate to how you talk to yourself. So I think this conversation is really going to tie together a lot of what we talk about in this podcast in a way that you probably haven't thought about it before. And I'm so, so excited to bring it to you. So Heather is really... I want to say that one of the goals in this podcast for me was to disseminate or get research out into the world that most people don't know about. So I haven't been very, very privileged in my life to be able to have the education that I've had and to be able to go on an internship and meet people like Heather and go get postdoctoral fellowship training. And this is something that I feel really passionate about because I get the privilege of talking to people like Heather all the time. And I definitely did consult with Heather about my kids' sleep when I was little, even though she mostly does adult work, but this is all. We talk about kids, too, here today because it's all relevant and related, the work that she does. But there, I wanted to be a researcher. That was my goal. And I think there are excellent researchers doing good work. But I also think there's a lot of room for improvement in the research field. There's a lot of pressure to 
do what's fundable and do what will be paid for. And many times that means, in my opinion, we're researching things that maybe aren't the exact thing that the researcher is passionate about or finds really important. And so Heather has really done an excellent job and it's been super fun to watch as a friend and colleague, watch her do really innovative work in this field. And so we're going to tap into all of her wonderful knowledge today. And I could not be more excited to bring this conversation to you. So Heather and I met on internship. It's the last year of your doctoral program in psychology. And it was a one-year internship at Rush Medical Center in Chicago. And we did a six-month rotation in a sleep clinic. So I, like I said, got the privilege of learning a lot of these things. But a lot of people don't know a lot about general principles associated with sleep. And many of us do things related to sleep that ends up undermining our ability to sleep. And so we're going to dive into a lot of that. And I'm sure you know the link between sleep and your health, and you may know that sleep causes stress and can make our, you know, make it harder to, well, sleep deprivation can be associated with weight gain. It can make it harder to make healthy eating choices for a whole bunch of reasons. And really this conversation you know, obviously this podcast is about moving away from diet mentality and moving away from controlled external motivation towards internal motivation, which many times looks like, you know, relinquishing control in some areas. And it's this weird balance. I think a lot of people struggle with, okay, well, I'm not supposed to diet, but like, how do I focus on my health or what does that look like? And certainly it absolutely can look like and focusing on your health and health promoting eating behaviors and exercise. But as we often talk about in this podcast, there are a lot of things that we're neglecting that could greatly contribute to our health. And if I were to name the three most important ones, we talk about it in this podcast a little bit, it's sleep, stress management, and social relationships. I think maybe I'm missing some, but I think those are the three that I see under focused on when we really need to be focusing on that. And so therefore, this conversation is really important. So, so excited to dive in. Some of the things that you're going to get in this two-part series is some questions like answering some basic questions, like how much sleep do we need? And hint, there isn't a hard and fast rule for everyone. Heather's going to tell us how to figure out what the right amount of time for you is. And if you feel like you don't have time to sleep, which as a parent, I get, um, looking at how to recognize, you know, what you're trying to get for yourself by staying awake and what to do about it. We're going to talk about ways to improve your sleep, whether you're having mild insomnia or you've had it for many, many, many decades. We're going to talk a little bit about how sleep relates to eating and weight, and we're going to talk about why sleep got worse for so many of us during the pandemic and how to approach sleep during times of transition moving forward. We're going to cover why and how hyperarousal, psychological safety, and stress relate to sleep. And we're going to also talk about a little bit about sleep in couples, a little bit about sleep in kids. So you can see why I had to make this a two-part episode. So, so excited to dive in with you. 
If you are new to this podcast and blog, welcome. I'm so excited to have you here. You might be wondering what this is all about. So we relate everything in this podcast back to motivation, but not the hustle and grind kind. Truly sustainable motivation that keeps you feeling energetic and engaged in your life for the long haul. So we talk about why I'm not just, I'm just not motivated is a myth and why your type of motivation is much more important than the amount and why it's so important to fully understand this. So if you're ready to learn about motivation and respecting your body in an effective way, so you can truly live a life you love, then you're in the right place. Go to the show notes and check out the foundational episodes to get a little bit of background about the theory and what we're talking about here with motivation. And if you're looking to get started with something that helps with truly building long-term sustainable motivation for any health behavior, this is related to eating, exercise, sleep, really anything you want to change. If you have not done some form of values assessment, whether you grab my free one or someone else's, this is truly going to change your life. This is something that in my program, universally, every single person that filled out my post-program survey said the values clarification module was their favorite. So to get started with the first step and starting to look at values, figure out what, how that matters to you, that's going to really help you build this autonomous motivation that we're talking about. So to do that, grab the free guide at drhondorf.com forward slash goals to get started with that today. And just as a reminder, this podcast and blog are for educational and informational purposes only and should never be construed as any form of professional advice. All right, everyone, let's dive in with my conversation with Heather Gunn. All right. So today I have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Heather Gunn, my good, dear friend and excellent psychologist with uh, expertise in sleep. So Heather is a assistant professor at the University of Alabama and also a licensed clinical psychologist. In her role, she is engaged in research, teaching, mentorship, and service. Her goal is for individuals to have meaningful and engaging and autonomy granting, which of course I love, relationships, and to be able to have restful sleep. So away from the office, she enjoys walking, phone dates with really cool people like me sometimes, <laughs> exercise, baking, reading, and spending time with her husband, cute son, dog, and cat. Welcome, welcome to the Motivation Made Easy podcast. Heather. Thank you, Sean. I'm so glad to be here. Me too. So we have a lot to get to today. We're going to chat a little bit about you, chat about sleep and autonomy and all the things you and I love talking about. So before we dive into all of that, can you tell us a little bit more about your, your personal story and how you became so interested in this field? Yeah. So maybe things these two things seem not related, um, sleep and, you know, interpersonal relationships. But, um, I was thinking about this, um, in advance of this podcast and how this all happened. Um, but in graduate school, I was at a, I was at a different school. Um, and then my advisor moved and I decided to move with her and I was sitting in a class, um, on really, interpersonal theory, but basically looking at how um, 
people struggle the most when, um, based on how their relationships were that when they were younger and how that explains a lot of how um, their difficulties now. Um, and, and we were specifically in this class talking about people who had been hospitalized several times due to um, psychiatric illness and, um, and stuff like that. And I remember thinking when, when she explained how important our relationships are um, in life and how it's really hard to go on and have meaningful um, autonomy granting and engaged life um, when, when your relationships are, are not right. I remember thinking like, this is why I'm here. Like it, like it all, like I had one of those moments. I don't even know if I got chills, but I remember thinking this was my reason for coming here. This is why every step that I took led to here. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if I have ever shared that with you. No, you haven't. That's awesome. Yeah. And it just was like, you know, when you hear something and it's like the world makes a little more sense to you and, and you can't unknow it ever again. Right. Yeah. And absolutely that we're going to talk about this, but you bring such a unique perspective rooted in this theory to sleep. So I'm super excited to have you share more, more about that. So that came maybe a year or two later I was doing, I I was in health psychology was my specialty. So I was doing a placement in sleep in graduate school and um, with the lens that relationships are so important and Um, with that lens, I started to hear narratives from people in the sleep clinic, mostly with insomnia, but some other things too. And I started to, I was like, hold on. Like if if people, this seems to be like a thing, you know, if you can't be settled, then it seems to be hard to sleep or your relationship with sleep actually is influenced by your relationship with people. So, um, it turns out I wasn't the first person to think of that. Um, and, and I started looking a little bit more and, and to anthropologists who have written about this and the importance of like social connectedness and the reason that we, um, like the reason that our relationships and our connectedness is so important for sleep is kind of rooted in like evolutionary theory that you needed safety in numbers, but now it's more about psychological sense of safety as opposed to physical, like physical needing people nearby you. Um, and so, and probably, uh, I'm interested in this in general because my relationships are so important to me. I'm I'm sure everyone says that, but really I, I truly feel that way. (laughs) Yeah. I think you're just like relational in nature and that like, it's your I don't really know how to describe it, but like you have, obviously you've always studied this and I met you after you sort of just discovered this area of study, Heather and I met on internship at Rush in Chicago, but you are are very invested. Like you said, your relationships have always been important to you and understanding, I think your yourself and how, and of course it's helped a ton of clients that you've worked with as well, helping to understand their history and how that influences how they interact with, with people. So, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, if you can maybe give us an overview of your main areas of sort of research, teaching and clinical work, I know we're sort of touching on it now, um, but I'd, I'd love to have you kind of summarize that if you can, what's like the, the things that you love researching that you love talking about and sharing with people in these areas the most. Yeah. So probably not surprisingly, the main focus of my relation, my research is relationships and sleep. Um, 
And I started, it started more small, just thinking about the things that people find interpersonally stressful and looking at sleep. And it's sort of evolved um, into, you know, a little bit bigger thinking about couples um, then thinking about family relationships. So parents and kids and their, and how their relationship influences what we learn about sleep and um, whether they can sleep. Um, and it's involved, evolved even more to think about broad social determinants of um, and how those relate to sleep. So our relationships with our community, um, what kind of communities we live in, um, uh, how, how do our communities operate and how do those um, maybe make it harder for some people to sleep more than others. So um, discrepancies, social discrepancies in um, sleep and, and disparities there. So more, most recently um, taking this to um, school start times and um, is this an area, cause that's a, that's a big hot uh, button issue. I think that's how you say that um, hot, hot topic and sleep research is delaying school start times, especially for high schoolers. Um, but, you know, like a lot of research everywhere, um, there's a, there's lacking, we, we lack the, the knowledge of how this influences like underserved communities. Um, so thinking about school start times in disadvantaged communities and disadvantaged youth um, is something that I've been thinking a lot about lately, but I never go far from sleep. So, uh, or from relationships too. So thinking about it at the family level too. So like, what does it look like for parents when they have good relationships and the kids can get up for school in the morning? How does that go? What does it look like when they can't? Um, how do we help at the family level? Um, with this. So that's what I've spent a lot of time talking about lately. Yeah. I know you've had a lot of really cool findings in these areas. Is there one or two like findings within these areas that you could speak to, to share just before we dive in here? I know that there was kind of an interesting finding about couples, but you could share whatever one you think is yeah. most interesting. <laughs> so it looks like probably not surprisingly, there's a couple of interesting things that happen with couples that um, I think most people find fascinating and, and also kind of like that thing where people who don't research it, they're like, well, duh. Um, but, you know, we, we try to confirm and, um, and um, two things that we think happens in couples and in families, actually, that in addition to the, your relationship with people influencing how we sleep. So I, I think you can imagine if you have a hostile relationship with somebody, um, it would be hard to decompress and go to sleep at night, right? Because your brain is in a threat. Um, even if it's not hostile as in my life is in danger. Um, but if your brain is experiencing that that sense of threat, it, it's actually um, doing its job and saying, don't go to sleep. Um, so couples with a lot more conflict and, um, and not the best type of relationship, one of them might find it, one or both might find it hard to sleep. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one thing. But then there's this other interesting thing that I really, I'm really excited to see where the field goes with this, but, and it's not just with sleep, but just the fact of being in a house with people and um, how you live with people, that there's kind of a contagion effect of sleep. So you, we, and one of the 
cool findings um, that that I was able to, we were able to look at it while I was on postdoc is that couples tend to have co-regulated sleep, or at least the way that we measured it in this one study, there's a lot to be determined from that, um, more than you would expect by chance. So you would expect most people who sleep at night, they're gonna have some overlap in when they're awake and when they're asleep. Um, but interestingly, at least in this one study, and we think it's, I think it's been replicated once, um, we see that they have co-regulated sleep even more than you would expect just due to sleeping at night at the same time. Um, and what does co-regulated sleep mean? So co-regulated in this instance means that they were awake and asleep at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that one because I was like, uh-oh, we don't go to sleep at the same time <laughs> at <laughs> but all. But you don't have to. And so there's a, a couple of couple ways you can look at it. There's like one way to look at it is just do you go to bed at the same time and wake up at the same time? but you don't have to. This is the other thing that I always try to tell, like, this is the first question I get asked is like, oh no, but you can also just look at when you are in bed at the same time, is it also coordinated, right? Um, And that meaning, what does that mean? Awake and asleep at the same time. Oh, so so like if you were actually measuring awake and sleep, like cycles as they sleep, Yeah. So in this study, we did it with, um, a watch. So it's just based on movement. And Mm -hmm. so one of the next things that needs to happen is that having people hooked up like with, um, more complicated sleep measures to see if that's still there. Interesting. So you're actually seeing this sort of like, as people go through the sleep phases and wake up as, as natural, like you're seeing some, some like similarities in couples, even during the, whatever, even if you only overlap for six hours and you're yes. each sleeping different, yes. like during those six hours, you're seeing that lineup kind of in. Yeah. Minute by minute, we see their wake and sleep lineup. Um, oh, interesting. Which you can imagine because if one person maybe wakes, moves, maybe they're, so then the other question is, and, and we're trying to get at this is, well, what does that mean? Is that good or is that bad? And I think people right. automatically assume it's good. Um, and I think my answer to that so far is it depends, um, right? If you're, if you're coordinated with a partner who wakes up a lot, probably not good, right? Um, but anyway, the, the thing, I, I think how it fits into this broader picture of physiology in general that I think is kind of interesting where the field is going or relationships research can go is, how much our physiology is in tune with another person. Mm. Um, so not just sleep, but like blood pressure and heart rate. And, and, and to a certain extent, there's not very much on this, but eating behaviors and um, um, meals and things like that, like those things tend to converge in families. Um, so um, yeah, that's all super fascinating. And I think really important. It's like another area of health that we don't focus on a lot. Um, like with it, certainly in the weight space, we focus way too much on eating and exercise only, and we don't look at the broader picture, but that's a part of the broader picture is like how humans interact with each other. I feel like I've, I've with the eating piece, I feel like my husband very much eats for fuel most of the time. Like, and that's just like how he's always been. And I feel like I eat for fuel more than I used to. And maybe it's also because I just like moved away from dieting. I still really enjoy eating at times and I have no restrictions, but like, 
I'm like him now. He always used to say I could eat, I would eat a plate of bark if it filled me up. Like he doesn't <laughs> care. Like he's just like, whatever. Will it fill me up and fuel my day? Don't care. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I actually feel like I have a little bit of that now where I'm just like, get food in my system. Let's keep going. And it's, um, I don't know if it has anything to do with that, but I just figured I'd mention it. Oh, totally. No. I mean, it, anecdotally with eating, it's funny you say that because my husband and I, I mean, I remember in grad school, I just was telling someone else this, it came up in conversation, you know, as living by myself before kids, I would be like, well, peas and popcorn and a smoothie sounds like a good dinner. And, you know, when we moved in together, he's like, that's not a dinner. And I'm like, well, to you, you know, anyway, we, we have evolved together actually over time. Um, in first of all, in how, what we eat and how we eat. And, um, and he is just someone who has meals, not even like heavy meals, just, you know, he eats regularly throughout the day. And, Um, and so I've kind of like done that too, because he's like, we're not having peas and popcorn for dinner. Um, but, uh, but also he's evolved more in what kinds of foods he eats too. So it is, it is kind of, and it's like, again, it's kind of like the thing that I'm sure people who don't do research are like, this is something you study. Well, of course this happens. Right. (laughs) Right. Um, (laughs) but it is, I do think we tend to think of eating exercise, sleep as such individualized behaviors. And we take it out of a context of the actual home people live in, you know, and what goes on in the house. And, um, it remarkably, especially in sleep research. And I have, I don't know with eating behaviors too, but, um, remarkably just paid no attention to even the person in the bed next to this person, right? Like, um, paid no attention to what was going on there and just thought of sleeping as an individual behavior. So right. I feel like that's my, my thing is to, of course, cause I think about relationships. I'm like, well, it's not, you know, but anyway. Yeah. But that's why we have to can put all of this into context. And that's why, that's why I love self-determination theory of like helping to understand the factors that lead to long-term behavior change, whatever that is. And of course that is going to directly relate to the, all of these topics, autonomy, competence certainly relates yes. to sleep, right? How yes. competent of a sleeper do I feel? And then relatedness, how connected do I feel? So it's like yes. very much about all the things that we're talking about. And before we dive in even more in depth with some of the great topics today, I want to just back up and start with the basics for a second. Why should we care about sleep? I think people know at this point, like we should, but like, let's just go over the basics of like why it's so important. Oh, wow. Um, how much time do we have now? I know. (laughs) Do you, do you want to take my class on, um, so no, I, I actually developed a whole undergrad class on sleep. Um, and I think undergrads are always surprised when they like, how are we going to talk about sleep the whole semester? Uh Um, you know what, let me start with this, the answer to this question, um, with, and I think this is part of what weaves into it, it with the basics of sleep. Um, and I think that will help uh, um, provide the context for why we care about sleep. Um, so sleep, most of us, uh, most sleep researchers think of sleep as kind of a two process thing. Two things are happening. I'll say a little bit more about the third thing that we think also is happening. That is kind of um, my, my mentor and postdoc um, has uh, started to talk about more. Um, and 
But first with the two processes, the basics are that we have a, um, the things that make us sleep at night. The first thing is a sleep drive. And that's basically that most people, not everyone, but most people have, um, are, are awake for about 16 hours. And after that 16 hours have some kind of drive for sleeping. Um, and that that's kind of how we have evolved over time. There's, there's some theories that maybe we had two sleep cycles before, like two sleep sessions before, but, um, but for the most part, everyone, one consolidated sleep session. And so that's the drive is what contributes to like, when you feel ready for sleep and you start getting that like heavy eyed and like, Oh, I could fall asleep. Like that kind of thing that like, I don't know, for me, it comes at like nine, nine thirty, and I push a little bit, but, um, that's sleep drive. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And then the other thing that is working in concert with sleep drive and when all things work well, this is what happens if someone, let's say their, their schedule is 11 to seven, when all things work well, this is what helps someone go to bed at 11 is that we have a circadian um, is, is our circadian process. So mm-hmm. process C is what they call it. Um, and that is that most of us operate on a day night schedule. So not only do we have this sleep drive, we're awake for 16 hours, but we also have this, um, this internal clock that's aligned with the, the light dark cycle, um, that says that most of us will get sleepies, um, or will feel the need to sleep somewhere between a, nor- a, a typical, I shouldn't say a normal, but a typical range is like somewhere between 10 and midnight and want to wake up with the sun or when it's daylight, um, you know, between like six or an eight in the morning or nine, that, that varies. There are people on the tails of that. Um, and there's, there's a wide range, but so that's our circadian rhythm. Um, and we, that is within us. We can, un- we can line it up with the external world to a certain extent um, which I can talk about later. Um, but those are the basics of sleep. So knowing, knowing that it helps us understand why it's so important to sleep, because first of all, being on a rhythm of a light dark cycle is kind of important for how every cell and every organ <laughs> works in our body. Um, and a lot of data have come out over the last several years that have suggested that, that like, our lungs are also have a rhythm and our heart has a, you know, yes, our heart has a rhythm, a beat rhythm, but also, um, and, and our gut by the way too, and how, and our metabolism. Um, and so having those things aligned means that other things are going to be aligned, feel more aligned throughout the day as well. So that's like one reason to sleep. Mm -hmm. Um, the other reason to sleep or the why it's so important is because we can't not, <laughs> which sounds so crazy, but we can't not sleep. M- people will say like, I have insomnia and, and believe me, people really do like suffer in this area. And they're like, well, what if I just never sleep? And I'm like, you are sleeping. Um, but there is basically some reason we, and we don't actually know why we think it might have to do with um, like, uh, resetting our brain at night. Um, <clears throat> and that, um, consolidating memories, but that's not the only thing that happens. Um, but, uh, cell growth, metabolism, um, regeneration that happens. Um, all of that 
that we think is why partly why we have this drive to just sleep and you can't not do it at some yeah. point. Yeah. And, and if we don't, like we know really strong data, I think there's more awareness about this now that like, I basically tell people to simplify sleep matters for pretty much everything yes. like functioning yes. in our body. Right. And yeah. because there's a, a lot of, of a stress response that occurs with yes. sleep deprivation. Right. Yeah. Or if you're yeah, not getting enough sleep or good quality sleep, everyone knows the hormone cortisol. There's obviously other stress response reactions, but yes. it's going to negatively impact most all of the things. And that in, yeah. And in terms of like, I don't know if there's anything you want to add to that, but either way, let's also summarize sort of how it impacts specifically like weight and eating. And I can add a little bit there too, but that obviously matters a lot for that as well. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I would love to hear, this is definitely probably the combination of this is more in your wheelhouse because a, a little ancillary to what I study, but, um, but I can tell you for sure that I've done a little bit of work with, um, or research on shift work. And, um, and so it, I also, I just want to go back and answer the question of like, why do we need to sleep? And I think you said most of why we know why we need to sleep is because we know what happens when you don't. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. right. So like mm -hmm. all kinds of bad things, um, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, mood eating, all of that motivation, all of that. Um, but, um, yeah, there's, um, there's some uh, literature out there that like, if, if we are awake all night, um, our, our, even our eating patterns become dysregulated, our, um, our digestion patterns become dysregulated too. Um, um, what we want to eat changes, um, with, we think with, um, circadian timing a little bit, but uh, um, more convincing research, I think so far, again, a little bit outside my wheelhouse, but is on how much we sleep. And if we're not getting enough sleep consistently. So I think people will say to me, but, oh, I only got six hours last night, but like you mentioned the stress response when we are consistently getting insufficient sleep, I, I think it tricks our brain into that. We need to go into threat mode. Like mm -hmm. something is happening that we're not sleeping. And so it responds with like needing more energy intake. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, so the cravings that people might feel like they want, um, if they're, um, not eating at the right time or they're getting insufficient sleep, maybe, potentially connected to this like kind of threat response of like the body trying to prepare for dealing with the threat. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like, yeah, you touched on pretty much the main areas that I usually talk to people about, which is yeah, increased drive to eat in general, um, increased preference for sugar, carbohydrates, and highly processed foods, things that give us that quick burst of mm -hmm. glucose and and of course the stress response, I feel like everyone saw those, like, uh, I forget if it was like some weight loss med that's like related to cortisol, but there is some truth to this stress response, having more abdominal fat deposition in the like stomach regions or like this, um, the type of fat that is more associated with disease risk. And yes. so being able to, instead of dieting, maybe even look at something that's more effective, which might be looking at improving type and quality quality or yeah, amount and quality of sleep, because that actually will 
improve things for you versus um, dieting, which is more likely to actually further increase the stress response over time. Yeah. And the way that, um, the way that we know more about this is the extreme of people who end up staying up on like shift work, chronic shift work. So not just one or two shifts or, um, but chronic shift work. Um, we, we can see differences in how they metabolize food and also insulin, um, how insulin, uh, works is different for when you eat and, um, and how late or not how late you eat necessarily, but, um, total sleep deprivation also makes, um, like you can make someone have like, look pre-diabetic by having them stay up all night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Shift work is a, a tough one in yeah. both of our fields. So yes, yes, totally. And, um, I wonder if we can do sort of define insomnia for folks. And maybe the way I often say is like insomnia is just our fancy term for, I want to sleep and I can't, but I'm sure there's more to it. So, um, when we say insomnia, Um, (laughs) that's a really great definition. Yeah. I mean, I think that describes it. Um, so it's when you have an opportunity to sleep, but you can't sleep, um, consistently. Um, but I will say, sometimes people say, well, um, maybe, maybe they're getting like what we might consider sufficient sleep, which is different for everyone, which is why I purposely am not saying what amount, mm-hmm. um, I could talk about it, but, um, mm-hmm. but someone might be getting what we think is sufficient sleep, but it's not restful sleep. So a lesser known definition of insomnia is that maybe you're getting what we might consider sufficient, but it doesn't feel restful. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's m- one side definition. Um, mm-hmm. but the, the typical definition is that you can't fall asleep when you want to, or you fall asleep when you want to, but you have wakefulness at night and can't go back to sleep. Mm-hmm. Well, and I do think that is relevant of this, uh, the amount of sleep, right? So uh, there's differences, but what would you say about that? Can you give us a general ballpark of what we should be aiming for? Yeah. So the first thing I'll say is to, instead of thinking of the number of hours is to check how you feel when you are going to sleep at night, when, when you wake up and then throughout the day. Um, so, you know, just track that. So like, how do you feel during the day is the first thing I will say for most people, the amount of sleep it falls somewhere between, I would say seven to nine hours. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, good. For that's what adults. I tell people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for adults. Phew. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Phew. Um, but for most people, that's it. And, and, um, there's some variability in there. Like when you sleep, maybe you, you know, like for some people who are not morning people, but have to get up, they might never feel like raring to go at six fifteen. you know, but, um, but if they, once they get up and get going and they generally feel like they have enough energy throughout the day, then I say that's a better gauge than like me saying you need exactly eight hours. Yeah. It's like intuitive eating for sleep. It's like yes. <laughs> tune in to yourself and know yourself. And so of course I love that. That makes sense. <laughs> Here's a general guideline. And, um, and I always tell people too, like, let's say right now you are getting on average, like four to five, like 
even moving in a direction, like not taking that, like, oh my goodness, I'm so far from that. I'll never get that there. That can be overwhelming, but just saying like moving in the direction of gradually getting more and more quality is going to be useful. Um, Yeah. And I think too, with the advent of like watches that everyone wears, you know, mm -hmm. and um, oh my gosh, it is so common for not only for people to worry about, well, it says I'm not, my sleep score is not good. Um, and then it also says I'm getting like too, too little deep sleep. And I, and first of all, I will say your watch cannot measure that really, mm-hmm. really it can't. Um, but yeah. same thing, like I give the same advice for that. Like take the watch off and just think about how do you feel during the day? So. Nice. Yes. Again, the external yeah, feedback might be unhelpful at times. Yes. So again, yeah. we also see parallels with that with eating. So Sounds good. And how effective are our um, traditional approaches for insomnia? Um, maybe speak a little bit to cognitive behavioral therapy yeah. for insomnia. It's actually pretty effective, but there's a caveat to this. And I'm sure that um, this is the same for other types of behavioral treatments. Um, but um, it's pretty effective in the people they have tested it with. Um, mm-hmm. Mostly, um, people with just insomnia and nothing else. And I will mm-hmm. say that I rarely see people like that um, mm-hmm. who don't also have other issues, but there it's still pretty effective. The two parts of cognitive behavioral treatment for insomnia that tend to have the most impact on improving sleep are, um, and this is like, these are like key parts of CBT for insomnia, less of the cognitive therapy that you would typically see in a CBT model, um, and more of the the behavioral, some people call it little C big B. Um, but that is restricting time in bed. And, um, and, and so like focusing on your sleep schedule, um, Mm -hmm. and, um, reducing arousing activities at night and then like the middle of the night, um, which has become harder when people, now that people have smartphones and, um, but those are basically the two biggest and uh, reducing someone's time in bed. I think it has the biggest impact on, um, insomnia. And I, um, we won't, I don't need to get into all the mechanisms, but the, the act of doing that helps, I think people remember how to sleep because remember that sleep drive that I talked about, mm-hmm. you're awake for 16 hours, you sleep for eight, most people, well, if you extend the wakefulness enough, you help them increase their drive enough so they can push through those awakenings. Um, and so for a little while, you just restrict it so that they only get maybe six and a half hours in bed or seven hours in bed, whatever it is, um, so that you build up their sleep drive. And that in turn, I think builds confidence, um, in being able to sleep again. The brain remembers how to sleep again. Um, yeah, which can fuel that feedback loop of like, I can sleep versus many people struggle with this idea of like, I am a terrible sleeper. I've always been a terrible sleeper and I always will be probably like, this is just something I have to cope with. And so, yeah, I wanted to highlight that. And so that people know that even if you have 
you know, struggled with insomnia. And we're going to talk in a bit about maybe areas to improve upon like the standard behavioral package, but the standard behavioral package CBT for insomnia is really not too many sessions and really quite effective. And it's definitely worth giving it a try, even if you have struggled a long time. Yeah, most of the patients I have seen and most of the patients that my students see, I, I supervise more than I, I see patients now, but most of them, I would say, come in having had insomnia for more than 10 years, um, mm-hmm. sometimes just a few years, but most of them come in having had like chronic insomnia and most of them we are able to help um, with, with that and then some other add-ons, um, depending on where we, where I am and what kind of support I have. But, um, I would say, and for someone who really cares a lot about relationships and who in other types of therapy more focuses on mostly on interpersonal, um, I, I definitely try this behavioral. I mean, of course I use interpersonal approaches and the, and my style of how I talk to a patient and how I coach my students talk incorporates interpersonal theory, but the, the actual, um, behavior of restricting time in bed, it tends to be pretty effective. Yeah. That's always nice. It's like, uh, with, I mean, there's a lot of therapies I think that are effective in psychology, but CBTI, what we're talking about here is definitely one of the more effective ones, you know, comparative up there with like specific phobia. If you want to get over your phobia of dogs, we can probably help you with it. It actually is pretty effective around there too. You just have to be willing to kind of put in the time and work. Um, So that's always exciting (laughs) when we can have more relative confidence in our ineffectiveness there. Yeah, it is. It's nice to have something like, oh, okay, this actually works. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Maybe I should get back to getting CBTI work. Although actually I would say like intuitive eating work, the more I've done, you know, different approaches more recently than not as weight loss focus. It's also very effective and very rewarding, although it takes longer than CBTI. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. That might be a little, um, but I will say some patients, it does take longer. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, yeah. So what about when the standard approaches don't work well, what do we think is going on there and how does this relate to kind of interpersonal relationships and psychological safety and things like that? It's like, you know, me, um, (laughs) (laughs) just a little bit. Um, So yeah, I started, I started making a case, um, probably in postdoc when I really like leaned into like, I'm going to bring this interpersonal approach to the world of sleep and insomnia. Um, because the, the, the line is this therapy is so effective and 60 to 70% of the time it works. And I'm like, what about the 30%? That's a Mm -hmm. huge number. And, um, and so there's various things we think going on there. I'll start with a very simple one, which is when people have come in with a very short sleep insomnia, so they can't, for example, like early morning awakening or sleeping like less than six hours per night. Um, that's, that's a simple, that's a simple way that it might not be working that regardless of anything else that's going on in this person's life, which, um, I can, talk a little bit more about, but because 
what, like I just said, the most effective thing to do is restrict someone's time in bed, right? Well, you can't restrict someone to like nothing. So you mm-hmm. just have no, not a lot of room for improvement there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one reason why it might not be effective. Um, and that's been documented, documented uh, a lot or a reasonable amount. Um, but other things that are going on that I tend to focus on is, well, what's going on in this person's life? Um, and, um, and it's been remarkable anecdotally, but even um, not anecdotally from um, um, even in um, more controlled samples that we see that people can have trouble sleeping when their relationships aren't aligned well, or um, when how they think about sleep um, or ha- what happened to them in childhood about that related to sleep um, influences their, how they think about sleep now. Um, so I'll just throw out some like more generic things that I think come up is something like perfectionism. Um, so this very self-critical, um, I have to be perfect, um, that can transfer to sleep, but also it's an impediment to sleep. So, mm-hmm. you know, like, um, because self-criticism is a threat um, and is antithetical to sleep. Um, so earlier on, when I talked about the basics of sleep and I said, it's a two process model. And also I'll talk later about a third thing that we think might be going on. I think this is an appropriate time to bring that in, which is that we think that um, someone's level of arousal has a lot to do with whether they can sleep, right? Sleep is vulnerable. Being asleep, semi, not you're not unconscious, but you're not awake and alert is an incredibly vulnerable position to be in. So if you think about anything that makes it so your brain is like, I don't want to be vulnerable right now, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and that could be anything. That could be that you set very high standards for yourself to your work performance. And so you're keyed up on that. And so then it makes it hard to go to sleep. I've been having that. Of course, I'm laughing. So I'm like, I usually don't have insomnia, but the past six months, a little bit. And yeah, yeah. that can be when you make a transition in your life to, um, a new, to the mix. Yep. Yeah. Um, just, you know, throwing that out there as a potential. Um, it can be that, you know, even happy transitions. Um, if, if your brain senses that there's like a little bit more going on and that it needs to be alert, um, then that's, um, you know, counterproductive for sleep, right? Mm-hmm. That, that means that um, it's going to try and stay alert and be aware um, because the thinking is, is that long ago, the kind of threats that we needed to be, like we're being, you know, being eaten or, you know, like mm-hmm. some kind of threat. And so the thinking is that that's now, translated into psychological types of threats as well. So even though we're not, we may not be in danger. And of course, if someone actually is in danger, um, so let's say you live in a neighborhood that doesn't feel safe to you, then it will feel hard to turn that off at night. Um, If you have a partner that um, you have a hostile relationship with, your brain might say, oh, it's not safe to sleep. And so I feel like I can always drill it down to something interpersonal because that's me. But, um, but I also even, even your own self 
talk, you know, is interpersonal, really intrapersonal, mm-hmm. but, but really you don't even have to think about it relationally. It's just, is that what, what's going on in your brain psychically currently past that tells you it's not safe. Um, mm-hmm. And so a lot of times um, people with a history of trauma um, and sometimes if that trauma has happened at night or even if it hasn't, you know, their brain kind of gets set up to prepare for that. So we. Yeah. Um, kind of hyper arousal. Yes. Effect. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes you can, you can attenuate that with just not just, but with, with a schedule change, right. And increasing the drive to sleep enough, mm-hmm. but um, when it doesn't work right away or when it's taking a while. So these, this, this question that we're talking about, it might be because there's some other kind of thing that we need to work on tamp down to, to reduce the arousal enough to allow for sleep. Yeah. Right. So thinking about just like eating, thinking about sleep and a lot of sleep disturbance as a symptom and saying sometimes, like you said, if you increase the sleep drive enough, you can retrain your brain to sleep, but sometimes there is a symptom that we do have to address. That's actually like a couple of months ago, I hit that wall where I was, uh, every time I have insomnia, I get out of bed to not associate my bed with sleep. Right. And, and I'm, I'm pretty like, eh, whatever, like I'm not, I don't have a long history of insomnia, but I occasionally it happens. And I was out there and was like, I was not going back to sleep. It was happening multiple times. And I, I was doing all the behavioral things. And yeah. I was like, I was actually getting really annoyed with my husband because he would come in and wake me up and like, right as I'd fallen asleep and I'm like, no. And so I was getting really angry with him. And then I'm like, but it's not his fault. Like he's just living his life. Like I have taken on a lot of workload that has yes. amplified my stress response. Yes. And so one of those nights when I was sort of <laughs> outside the bedroom reflecting, I'm like, we got to make a change here. And that's when I started to make some shifts in how I work and, you know, working on different ways to work smarter, not harder and not as many hours, but it going back to it is just being able to say like, yeah, we absolutely can try these tried and true behavioral approaches. Definitely give those a try. A lot of people don't try that first because they don't even know about it. Right. Um, but sometimes also there's these, all these other factors that maybe aren't being considered that might cause, um, hyper arousal. And it, yes. like you said, it can be a variety of types of stressors, positive yeah. stressors, transitions, or relational hostility or relational stress that can also be a big one. Yeah. So a, a good example of when I think this happened <laughs> for a lot of people was when the pandemic hit. Mm-hmm. Um, oh my gosh. I was like, you know, friends, family were coming out of the woodwork. I can't sleep. And myself included, I would get into bed and be like, what's going to happen? You know, what's, yeah. what's going to happen? And you have no control over it. And I know all the things to do for sleep. And I was like, okay, right now it's, there's hyper arousal and there's nothing to be done about it. I can't not have it. I can do mm-hmm. some other things to try and combat it, but this is a phase. This is a transition. So what I did And what a lot of, I, because they were, they were interviewing sleep researchers or sleep clinicians left and right during this time. What a lot of people recommended was I didn't even try to get eight hours or seven and a half, which is my typical. Um, I just, I, I turned off the news. That was a big thing um, before bed and did something that was totally disconnected and just, you know, to try and reduce that arousal 
but I also didn't try to aim for a, my brain was in threat mode, which most of us were, you know, and so, um, and it was just going to have to be that way. And so sometimes I say that to people, like if they're in a transition, I say, okay, you know, we need to expect that you're just going to have a lot of arousal right now. So let's not try for eight hours. Let's try for six and a half of good, solid sleep. And in that interim time, like before bed, or um, when you wake up in the morning, let's, let's have some like um, arousal reducing things, like reconnect with yourself in a way that feels, you know, self-compassionate. I was listening to your podcast um, about self, you know, yeah. reconnect with yourself in a way and just a little bit of acceptance and a little bit of combating, but not working so hard to try and get the sleep through this transition, but um, recognizing it's just going to be a little bit hard until your brain is able to settle. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Again, another example where like similar to, to eating the external control and pressure can make it very hard for that process to with sleep. You have to figure out a way to allow it to happen. And that's where sometimes people find it beneficial to do something else that's relatively relaxing. And maybe we can talk yeah. about a couple quick tips of things that people can do, like if they're not sleeping well. Um, and, but that like, yeah, we have to get our brains, um, on something else enough. So sleep can occur and sleepiness can occur and, and definitely not the news. All right, everyone, that's it for today. Make sure you jump back to next week's episode where we have part two, where we finish this conversation. We're going to talk about tips to improve your sleep, whether or not you have insomnia. We're going to talk about ways to find time for sleep, even if you're incredibly busy and really ways to look at your motivation for sleep and what might be going on there. So thanks for listening today, and I can't wait to see you next week. In the meantime, I'd love to hear what you're thinking and what questions you have about sleep, and let me know what other episodes or topics you want to cover in the future. All right, everyone, have a wonderful day. Thank you for tuning in today. Your time is valuable, and it means so much to me that you're here. Despite the title of this podcast, many of our topics are not always easy. Change is hard, and let's face it, life and truly looking inward at ourselves can be uncomfortable. That's why I'm grateful. Grateful for you and your willingness to listen, learn, and keep an open mind. I invite you to learn more by going to drshawnhondorp.com or finding me on Instagram at psychology.of.wellness. If you're enjoying this podcast, it would be amazing if you could give it a review so more people can find it. Thanks, and I truly hope you have an energetic and inspired day.